Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, movers and shakers. It's time to step into the next phase of your world domination with another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Over the next 45 minutes, we're going to equip you with nine more hints about what the future has in store so that you can have the edge over everyone else. And here, with his large grab bag full of secrets, is the guru himself, Matthew Dickerson. Matt, what's been occupying your headspace just recently? Well, do remember that they'll only have an advantage over people who don't listen to Tech That's Talk. That's right. So they'll have an advantage over all those people out there who don't listen, but people who do listen, they'll go, oh, yes, I already know that. And those numbers who, of people who don't listen, it's getting smaller and smaller exactly by the right. day. Yes, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> One of the things, though, that is not getting quite as small as I would like it to get is the people who still think that this climate change is a bit of a hoax. Mm. And I, I kind of mm. get to the point sometimes when I go, no, no, everyone gets it. The debate is over. The only thing we're debating now is how to solve the problem. We know the problem. We understand that we've made the problem. So let's get on and solve it. But then every now and again, I just see something and I go, oh, no, no, I am so mm, wrong about yeah. this. And we've got an election coming up uh, or just recently had an election in, in one of the states and there was a candidate at one of the forums, and this is a candidate for a major party, who said that this particular person was not convinced that climate change was man-made and she based it on alternate information, and that's another thing that stirs oh, me up. Yeah, alternate rather than alternative, wrong word, but let's, let's, let's skip that one there. But based on alternate information... In now debunked claims that NASA attributed climate change to the Earth's solar orbit. Now, that's obviously rubbish. We know that's all rubbish. And I thought, well, that's a silly little offhand statement by someone that really hasn't done their research. But then what really got me was when the leader of the party that this person was standing for, who's a senior politician in this particular state, came out and said that he supported his candidates being outspoken and you need to take in all sides on issues such as climate change. And I'm quoting here, we know that there is climate change, but the climate is always changing. Oh, that old chestnut. That's fine. As a party, we continue With to no have... With no comment about the rate of change at all? Okay, all right. No, none of that. Yeah. As a party, we continue to have a balanced view. Mm, how do you have a balanced view yeah. on something that's categorically been proven to be created by man and we need to now go and solve the problem. So what hope have we got, James? Matt, I've got to pull you up there. And one thing that makes me uh, just uh, makes my hair stand on the back of my neck a little bit is the word proven in science. We've only got evidence for and we support. Sure. So, so I'm going to pull you up on that. But, yeah, look, and this is one of the most researched topics <laughs> in the history of science. Right. So so we've had more people looking into this with more data and more models than ever before. Yeah. Uh, and one thing that, that sort of I, I also get very, very uh, uh, tense about is when people start quoting things that we've were something that came up maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> so, for example, you know, if, if people want to talk about, you know, Al Gore and and what Al Gore was doing, you know, with his uh, inconvenient truth, you know, 20, nearly 25 years ago now. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, as part of their argument. Well, you know, 
We've moved on since then. And if you can't bring stuff into the argument from the last five years... <laughs> At least then, be reasonable, doesn't you be need today. To, yeah. And there was a guy um, from the University of Western Virginia. His name was Don Easterbrook. And he published a graph. He was the, the head of um, geology in, in this uh, University of Western Virginia. Now, he was found by his, his own colleagues to have forged his stuff. Now, he showed that there was a nice, just nice, neat cycle from the ocean that was showing that it just goes up and down and up and down. But what he didn't tell them was that he'd actually cut and pasted stuff from the 60s onto into his projections. Right. And people are still quoting this guy <laughs> and still showing his videos and stuff, you know, 15 years later after he's been punished for his sins. Mm. Uh, so these alternative facts are worrisome. And there is so much stuff there that is from the last five years that we can look at. That's right. But again, again, I take your point about proven the information, all the information we have. And, and I think it was Dr. Carl who once said to me that you need, as a, as a scientist, you need to have all of your proof sitting on the fingertips. So the, the smallest wisp of other proof or other evidence can blow that information yeah, away. Yeah, that's right. So that's yeah. exactly what we've got here. But we've got so much information sitting on our fingertips that's at the so moment. so much. And we haven't seen any little wisps of other alternative information coming along to blow that away. In fact, we just keep adding to the information that shows that man has created the situation. It is changing. Things are happening. We only need to see the evidence of things that are happening in terms of extreme weather events that we see mm. even where we live here. So surely, let's just get on a fix-it problem rather mm. than having candidates talk about, yeah, let's go out there. And it's obviously appealing to a certain type of voter, but one of the jobs of a politician surely is listen to your voters, but also lead them. You're meant to be a leader, not mm. just sit back and go, I'll take an opinion poll and everything and then follow what people said. So obviously this particular party thinks some of their voters out there don't believe in climate change, so we'll appeal to them by saying we're not convinced about it yet and we'll take a balanced view. No, lead the way, lead. <laughs> That's right. Be a and leader. Look, all these efforts towards sustainability and a greener future, just they mark better practice anyway. Well, I some people have some discussions, some may call them arguments, with about climate change. And I normally finally take a victory. I'm not sure if they'll give me the victory, but I'll take a victory ah. because I eventually say, well, would it be better if we had less pollution? Would that be a nicer mm. earth to live in or on? Would that be a nicer city to live in where there's less pollution? And most people say, well, yeah, I suppose so. So let's just do that. Let's, let's pretend... Just for the sake of the people who don't believe that nothing to do with climate change, but let's just have less pollution and live in a nicer place. That sounds like a way to get around it, maybe. Mm. <laughs> anyway, it's interesting to see. Yeah, we and go. we continue to watch this space, don't we? Yes. Well, here it is, folks. Get your pen and paper out. It's the first item on the Father's Day list for 2023. We're getting in early, roughly five months early, but it's always it always helps to just get yourself prepared. Now, what do you give the dad who has everything? If you can't find a knick-knack gadget on this podcast, then, well, you haven't really been paying attention. And we cannot be held to blame for that, folks. Here it is with heaps of time for Father's Day. Matt, let him in on the action. Tell him the number one Father's Day present for 2023. Forget all the other ones. This is the one to get your father because I don't know many fathers have got this, but they need it. Mm. And that's the sort of problem that we solve here on Tech Talk. The problems you didn't know you had, but we've got a solution to them anyway. Mm. And this is what we've got. We've got an automated toothpaste dispenser. Now, <laughs> I remember as a kid, we used to I get some little ceramic things. I'm not sure how I'd describe the ceramic thing, but it had a metal rod that went through the middle of it with a little winding handle, and you'd put 
the toothpaste tube into that and wind it around. And ah. they were probably Was this a metal toothpaste correct, tube as well? They were the yeah. aluminium, I assume yeah, they would have yeah, been. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So you'd wind it around. So you'd squeeze all that toothpaste out and it actually worked quite well. Of course, now you get towards the end and they're plastic toothpaste and you're squeezing it out as much as you can, but yeah. it just doesn't seem to do the trick. This. Oh, look, I just have a problem with people who want to squeeze it from the middle. Oh, Please, don't start, James. <laughs> Forget the climate change denials. Now you've really hit on the, the button. So this automatic dispenser mounts on the wall. It's got a suction cup on the back of it, so it mounts on a flat surface, on a tile, on a mirror. And you put the toothpaste in the top, unscrew the lid, put the toothpaste in the top, and then, just for an extra bit of a bonus point for your father for Father's Day, hygiene is taken into account here. Ah. You don't need to scrape the toothbrush across the top of the toothpaste. You simply insert it in a hole in the actual toothpaste dispenser and it automatically squirts out the toothpaste. Gives you a dollop. Exactly right, a dollop. You want two dollops, you go for another squirt. So hang on a second. I've just got an issue with hygiene, right? Because the ingredient within the toothpaste, toothpaste tube has got monosodium, uh, what is it? Monofluorosodium, oh, I've forgotten what it is. It, it's got fluoride in it, right? right. Yep, and good. fluoride is an Excellent antibacterial. It just sounds good because it looks a bit disgusting when you just get someone else's toothpaste and scrape it across the top of your toothbrush. It, and you it, think, does, it doesn't <laughs> look great, but there's no real issue with it. And no. I haven't been poisoned yet by... Oh, well, I, I assume I haven't been poisoned yet. Well, you're probably sharing it with your wife, so that probably doesn't count. <laughs> it's a, but no. all the toothpaste tubes I've shared, like going camping and whatnot, and school camps and stuff like that. Oh, well, you are friendly. <laughs> 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 okay, so I take it, it sounds good from a hygiene perspective. Yeah, okay, it sounds good, good from a hygiene perspective. <laughs> I reckon, and I've got to remember, sodium monofluorophosphate, that's it. There you go. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that gets rid of every bit of bacteria, okay, every germ. <laughs> <laughs> but it may do. But the idea here is that it's just insert the toothbrush, pull it out, you've got a dollop on there, away you go. But more importantly, it uses all the actual toothpaste out of the tube. And I started thinking about how this is going to save the planet. Because mm. if you start to think about all those toothpaste tubes that get thrown out mm. with just with a little bit in there, a with little a bit in there, in there. Yeah. now you'll be able to use all of that. And mm. the Colgate to the world will be protesting vehemently because they'll be saying, oh no. People aren't going to buy as much toothpaste because they're getting every last drop or dollop out of their toothpaste tube. Mm. So keep an eye on that one. You heard it here, folks. It's made by Ecoco, E-C-O-C-O, Ecoco Toothpaste Dispenser. They're not very expensive. As I say, they mount on any wall, any flat surface. Sounds like a good thing. I've got to go and order one for myself. Have you got earwax problems, folks? Well, you can stop using cotton buds. That's not what they're meant for. I keep telling my wife that, but I cannot stop her. Me, I don't have a problem with earwax, or at least if I do, I don't care about it enough to actually do anything about it. Earwax, schmearwax, I say. But for those of you who are so pretentious that you just have to have a clean and shiny auditory canal, you can now get headphones that'll do the job for you in under a minute. Matt, Father's Day is going to be a cracker this year. It is, isn't it? I've actually had the problem once. I was actually going to give a presentation, and I just... On the way, literally in the car on the way to this presentation, I just must have got a little bit of earwax that just touched on my eardrum and I was trying to pop my ears just like you were flying and, and going to a higher <laughs> altitude and I couldn't pop it. So I, I actually kept hearing my own voice back as if I was ah. blocking one ear. And so I actually stopped at a doctor's surgery on the way to the presentation and said, help me Can out. Urgently. <laughs> That's right. And then I learned what they do and they stick a little thing in your ear and squirt lots of water in and out comes a chunk that looks quite disgusting. And I could hear again. It was, it was a miracle cure. It was instant. But I did, and I think 
that doctor, I must have said, should I get my cotton buds out more regularly? He said, no, a bit like mm. you're saying to your wife, no, don't do that. I think the rule is you only stick something the size of your elbow in your ear. Correct. That's yeah? exactly what I was about to say. He yeah, said gotcha. to me, anything smaller than your elbow is not to go in your ear. And I went, oh, that means nothing really. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So I know there are some devices you can buy that you can squirt some water and do it yourself or go to the doctor. But this device here is fantastic, but it looks disgusting. I actually watched a video of it in use and you put on the set of headphones for some reason, one of the designers thought, wouldn't it be cool to have the fluid in the actual cups in a clear container? And my advice now after watching the video would be, no, that wasn't a cool idea. Because <laughs> it's got water in the cups. It's got two little jets that go into your ear. So you put it on, it just sits there at the edge of your ear and then squirts the water in to flush out any wax you've got in there. But of course, it catches it in the ear cup. So the water in the ear cup very quickly becomes a tea-coloured brown, mm. and it's got little chunks floating around in there. And that looked quite disgusting when I watched the video <laughs> of this. <laughs> if you're happy to put up with that, it's a great way to keep your ears cleaned. FDA in America has now cleared it as an ear cleaning device, so it's been yeah. given approvals there, so that's obviously good. 35 seconds it takes. I know when I went to the doctor that time with an emergency, I think they managed to clear it out in about, say, 10 minutes or so, and maybe it normally takes, say, 20 minutes, but... 35 seconds sounds pretty impressive. You literally put the ear cups on, I think, and I don't have any data to back this up, but people probably have a bit of build-up of earwax on a mm. semi-regular basis. I've got some right now. <laughs> exactly right. What was that? What was that? <laughs> so you put these on, I don't know, maybe use them once a month or so. At this stage, the only minor problem is they're designed for clinicians to use more so than home users. And the only thing that is really prohibiting home users using them is the price. You're spending several thousand dollars oh, on wow. this set okay. of headphones at this Maybe stage. Not. If you're really keen, you've got lots of earwax problems, I think you'd pay a few thousand dollars. But again, initially it's designed for clinicians. So you go into your doctor, as I did, and rather than have a nurse sit there and squirt water, etc., etc., they say, put these on, I'll be back in 35 seconds, and that'll be $50. Thanks very mm. much. <laughs> so it sounds like an interesting sort of uh, invention, not sure if invention is the right word, it's an interesting application of something they were already doing in a self-contained unit. I think it's a good idea. Here's a headline that you weren't expecting, folks. Vinyl record sales have overtaken CD sales for the first time since 1987. Matt, there is one big surprising thing about this for me, and that is that I cannot believe that anyone on the planet is still buying CDs. Now, vinyl's a classic. I'm okay with that. But CDs, they're the acid wash baggy jeans of the music world. They're the parachute material tracksuit of the music world. They are the permed hairstyle of the music world. Who is still buying CDs? Well, some people apparently. I was at a car show only today, and there were some old classic cars there. None of our listeners would still be buying CDs, surely. Well, <laughs> I saw at this classic car show that some people there with their cars, it was set up exactly as they were when they were built in the 50s or 60s or 70s. Some of them said, oh, I cheat because it's got a radio in it. And they said, open the glove box. And you open the glove box and there's a CD player in there. I don't know why you'd bother about a CD player. Mm. Why not have some You need the space for stuff in your... You need space for your gloves. Exactly right. But why not have something that just plays MP3, plug in yeah. something to an MP3 player, but no. So CDs, and the funny part was I did see one that was sitting in a glove box on some matting type device there. And that was because 
when this car goes over bumps, it skips on the CD. So even <laughs> even CDs skip. But I'm still amazed. I I'm not much of an audiophile, but I'm still amazed that people are buying vinyl because mm. it doesn't sound as good. It sounds crackly and scratchy. And I love vinyl. Oh, and on my push bike when I go for a ride, I just don't know. I can mount the record player on the push bike itself. But there are obviously people out there who are still buying vinyl. But I imagined when I was doing the research for this story that it was some old classic songs. The Beatles' White Album, for mm. example. People are still buying ones like that, but no. Taylor's Led Zeppelin sounds great on vinyl. Well, it, and it's probably that memory of how you first yeah, heard it. Okay. it. It could be, but Taylor Swift was the highest-selling artist in vinyl record sales last year, selling 1.7 million <laughs> vinyl records. Was it her album from the 70s that she did? <laughs> there, when she was, before she was born, maybe. <laughs> so it just seems incredible to me that that many people are still buying vinyl. But when you look at the overall sales, there's vinyl sales accounted for $1.2 billion in revenue, while all physical formats made up 1.7 billion, so they're obviously a large part of all mm. those. But 1.2 billion? Who is who is buying 1.2 billion worth of vinyl? It just seems incredible. To your point about CD sales, they did plummet, presumably from a fairly low base to start with, but they plummeted by 18 percent. And I, I'm mm. probably with you a little bit. I don't know if you love the classic sound of vinyl. Sure, buy vinyl, but CD is like an MP3 sound, so yeah, why would you bother about just the, bulky. Yeah, why would you bother about the clumsiness of CD when you could just go to MP3? And maybe someone out there will tell me that CD is better or cleaner or crisper than MP3, but mm. they sound the same to me. But mm. think about it when you're driving a car, you've got road noise, and if you're driving on those old-fashioned things that have got an engine in it, you've got engine noise, you've got a bit of wind noise, and then you put on something where it's meant to be oh, look, I can just listen to that slight difference there in the exact tone of something. Not many people have a studio at home set up to listen to their records or CDs or MP3s in such high quality. But there you have it. It's overtaken, vinyl's overtaken since 1987, and obviously 1987 when CDs were on the way up, mm. and now CDs are on the way down a bit. But, but vinyl, I just <laughs> I still shake my head at that. It seems incredible. <laughs> Officially now a robot for everything, people. If you need a job done, I have concluded that there must be by now a robot that is designed to do it. And the reason I've come to this is that there is now a robot to help corn farmers to gauge the angle of the leaves on the corn stalks, which I can only imagine is a really important feature for guessing when to pick your corn. This has to be the very last thing on the list of things we need to get a robot to do, surely. Bring us some insight, Farmer Dickinson. This is so specific, so niche, isn't it? And we are getting to that point now with robots that are getting so niche. The leaf angle distribution for a row of plants helps plant breeders identify genetic lines that have desirable traits. Right. Or presumably undesirable traits as well. So this technology... So the desirable traits are in the firmness of the leaf, the upright stature of the leaf. Presumably how it stands up or doesn't stand up. There you go. And by using technology in this way, we can speed up the plant breeding research and eventually improve our crop yields from corn. We are getting down to the one percenters now, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We really are getting yes, down to the level. Because farmers traditionally have done this themselves. They've gone along and looked at some of their plants and gone, oh, look at that angle there. That's not as good as that one over there. I'll use that row over there or those corn stalks over there. 
Now they just send the robot out and they'll come back and say, here are the best bits of all of this crop right there. So for your future breeding, use those ones to continue to breed better corn. So it's, it, And it does. And when I thought about this, I just thought it really is niche on that is, niche, that is isn't it? <laughs> this that robot, is definitively niche. This, this robot does nothing else. This <laughs> robot, you can't say, by the way, get me a beer from the fridge and bring it to me while I'm watching a game of footy. It just does the corn leaf so angle. So unless you've got several hundred hectares of corn, you probably don't need this. <laughs> I think you'd probably rent it, wouldn't you? You'd probably, <laughs> I don't know that Maybe. I'd buy one. Yeah. I, I'd say, let's go and rent one for the one time a year, maybe. Maybe it's more often than that, but not very often a year that I need to go and do this particular job. But we thought they were fairly niche when we had robots doing spot welds on cars and car manufacturing. When that mm. first started, it was like, oh, they can't do as good a job as a, a human welder. Mm. Obviously, now they can do incredible welds and obviously an incredibly important part of car manufacturing. But even those robots can do different models of cars. <laughs> this year can just do just corn crops. Corn. They can't go and do a wheat crop or something <laughs> else. They just are corn. The push to go green is everywhere, except for some stubborn government agencies perhaps. But almost all high-profile groups are falling over themselves to show the public how they're growing themselves into a brighter future. The most recent multi-billion dollar group to elbow their way into sustainability, into the sustainability limelight even, is Formula One racing, and they want to be carbon neutral by 2030. Matt, this is going to take quite a bit of effort, surely. I do feel guilty sometimes. I am a Formula One fan. I remember growing up, I used to go to some of the Formula One races in Adelaide and in Melbourne. So I'm a bit of a fan, and I do sit down sometimes and go, gee, they're just burning petrol for the sake of saying, I'm faster than you. Mm. Sure, there's some development that happens behind the scenes, and cars, some things we have in modern cars now were developed in Formula One first. But But, but their cars get transported around the globe by planes. Correct. um, And not a lot else. So the whole industry... That's right. It, it is a circus and it's quite incredible when you go to a Formula One race and then you walk out in the back paddock and you do see all of these incredible shipping containers and mm. all these trucks to transport that around. So when they start talking about being sustainable, and I do watch it, so I've watched some of the things where they do talk about it, I kind of go, oh, don't try and kid us. Like, really? Are you, <laughs> are you, are you trying to pull the wool over our eyes here? Just put it for what it is and say, yep, we use lots of fuel, we're not great for the environment, but we're going to develop safer cars, maybe, or just faster cars, who knows. But they are really pushing. And this isn't about Formula E, which I do like Formula E as well. Again, they've still got to transport the cars around, but the cars, mm. when they're racing, are only using, obviously, electric vehicles. But this is a big claim. Formula One plans to become fully carbon neutral by the end of 2030. And when they say fully carbon neutral, it is. And they are talking about exactly what you mentioned, not just the racing, but all the processes that go on to actually bring you Formula One. Now, there's some fuels. That's one of the the first things, obviously. F1 currently is a hybrid fuel, 10% biofuel, and they'll transition to fully renewable fuels by 2026. So that's not bad. F2 and F3, which are kind of the junior formulas, if you like, they'll use a blend consisting of 55% advanced sustainable fuel, ASF, which just sounds like a sexy name for something else. <laughs> uh, and that's going to be starting from this season. So 2023, F2 and F3 are going that way. And then by 2027, F2 and F3 are going to use a carbon caption fuel called 
e-fuel. Now, is it one of those things where you put an E in front of anything? <laughs> so this is e-tech talk because we bring it to you in a sustainably responsible manner. I'm not sure. So e-fuel, I'd like a little bit more information about e-fuel and how you might produce that and how you're taking away the carbon emissions from that. Mm. Are you just planting a bunch of trees to offset the CO2 you produce? I'm not sure, but... Because if they're burning anything... Yeah, that's right. You're making carbon dioxide, aren't you? <laughs> you are, and it's like the power plants that say, oh, no, we're doing cleaner burning. We've got cleaner coal, but Clean you're coal, still... Yeah. still making the carbon dioxide. That's right. So you might be a little bit less, but you're still making it. So this is pretty interesting, and I'll be really interested to see how they go with some of the claims. And I have actually noticed a bit of a slant as I've watched it over even the last season or two where they start talking about this, and I just think, yeah, 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 sure, you're, you're saying a few words that you think people want to hear, but really, you're going out and burning through an incredible amount of fuel in one race. Each car is obviously very powerful, therefore it needs the fuel to be powerful, so maybe they just cut it back and top speed limit is 80 kilometres an hour. That might solve the problem, but I don't know that many people mm. would go on and watch it. So this is interesting. Keep your eye on this one. If Formula One can do it by 2030, then surely the rest of the world can work out some way to be sustainable in, in their practices. Trying to find the next big thing is always the challenge when you're jostling for prominence in the world of technology. That's the way it's always been. Now we talk about me uh, medical wearables a bit here at Tech Talk, so get a load of this, folks. Medical tech has for too long been distracted by the condition of our blood. We measure our heart rate, our blood pressure. We check the levels of oxygen with a pulse oximeter, etc., etc., etc. So a group from the University of Cincinnati have employed a little bit of lateral thinking and are now looking for ways to read our interstitial fluid. Matt, reading our blood is so 2022. That's right. <laughs> now, I don't give investment advice. We've talked about this before with crypto, for example, but we have talked a little bit about wearable tech devices, haven't we? Yeah. And I just see so many more wearable tech. That seems to be the big future. And some of the analysts say that that whole market will grow by 15% year on year for the next decade mm. as we get better and better. Now, you're right. But it takes lateral thinking because you know, people know they can take your pulse and we're getting better at doing the blood pressure and we can do the, the amount of oxygen in your blood. So we need something new, something we do. special. And you will remember Theranos. Theranos. Remember um, Elizabeth, oh, yeah. Elizabeth Holmes had a company that promised to be able to get lots of information from one prick of blood and the valuation of that company shot to US $10 billion on the promise, not yeah. on actually any real results. Anyway, we know where that's ended, people are in jail, and, and so that didn't go so well. But the reason that was so exciting was the promise it was still blood, but it wasn't go into a pathology centre, take out a bunch of blood, test for a few different things. I oh, know, you need some more tests, go and take some more blood. That, I think, is really what's so yesterday. Mm working out other ways to get all the information. And again, everyone would said, well, you can't get it from a drop of blood. It turns out you can't get it from a drop of blood. Mm. But that was the promise there. But interstitial fluid basically has most of the same markers that blood has in it. The Should we tell people what interstitial fluid is? Sure. You tell me what you think it is. Well, and then, it's, and then a, it's a fluid that bathes your, your tissues. So it's so it's not blood. So blood has already been passed to your to your muscles and your all your tissues and whatnot. But then you've got other fluid like lymph, which is the plasma that comes out of the blood, and that's uh, basically bathing all your your muscles and your, your tissues in your body. Yeah. So I would have said it, it's it surrounds the cells, tissues, and organs 
in the spaces between tissues. Mm. So it's it's extracellular it's, fluid. It's a thing basically. that's flushing um, infection away um, and it's loaded with white blood cells and whatnot. Um. And it also nourishes our cells. Yeah. So basically our nutrients and getting rid of, let's say, whether it be bacteria or just waste products, getting rid of those from our cells. So fairly important in the whole scheme of things. Absolutely it is. But again, that lateral thinking. So researchers have looked at that and said, well, hold on, this has got, pretty much the same sort of chemical composition or the same chemicals that can be used to read certain things as our blood. So can we get enough information from this to actually give us all the information the same as blood? And you say, well, we've got blood, so why do you care? But the exciting part is that you can then put a monitor on your body somewhere. Let's say your upper arm, for example. You can put something that's got some microneedles on it and stick that patch on, probably about the same amount of pain as ripping a Band-Aid off. So you'll mm. stick it on, you go, oh, that just stung a little bit. Not the same as having a needle. I know some people who are fainters who yeah. they see the needle coming and they go, I better sit down because you're going to stick a needle thing. in me. Yeah. That's right. So you stick this on and then you can have real-time monitoring. So it's not as if we take your blood today, James, and we'll see how it is and then come back in a month and the changes we're making to your drugs, your diet, whatever they're making changes to, we'll check how it's going in a month's time. With interstitial fluid, we could actually have monitoring on there, real-time monitoring. At the moment, they've got it so it's connected via a cable, either to something you might carry with you or a machine that goes bing. (laughs) (laughs) The most expensive machine in the whole hospital. That's the one. (laughs) And uh, and so you can monitor those real-time. So you can imagine here that you go in for some sort of diagnosis and the doctor says, here's a drug that might treat that. I want to get the dosage just right because we need to make sure we monitor this. Here, stick this on. We'll monitor you over the next week while we put certain dosages into your system and get the levels right in your interstitial fluid, which means that the levels are going to be right in your blood, for example. Mm. So that type of thing. Diabetics, there's a huge industry in diabetes. Obviously, there are a lot of people with diabetes across the world. So if you could do constant monitoring of blood sugar levels for diabetics, and that sounds like mm. it would be a huge thing. So I think a whole range of good things can happen out of this. I imagine that at some stage, and this initial research doesn't have this, but surely it's going to happen, that some stage there'll be a device that you plug on and everything goes better with Bluetooth. So <laughs> once you put that on, having a Bluetooth connection back to your phone, which you're supposedly carrying with you, and then having a link from there back to your doctor, for example, get alerts about different things that might be happening, different changes. So as much as we'd love to think of the idea of real-time constant monitoring, I think some of the experts are saying blood is not the way we'll do that. Mm. Let's go and look at something else in your body and interstitial fluids seems like the obvious one. So sounds interesting, sounds exciting. Wearable tech, that's the way to go. Here's an update on a topic we did a couple of months ago. It's all about floating solar cells. Now here at Tech Talk, we pride ourselves in the fact that a reasonable percentage of our regular listeners are on the land and probably have a couple of dams on their property for watering their stock. Well, it looks like we may be about to head into another El Nino and that means fresh water is about to become very precious again. And Matt, well, you may just have a couple of very good reasons to jump aboard this floating solar panel train. Well, the first thing, which is the most important thing, is the lovely name that they gave to photovoltaic cells that float. Of course, it's flotovoltaics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. You can't miss that opportunity, can That's you? That's right. And that 
reason is enough as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> You're sold. That's it. You haven't even got a dam, but you're going to get some of these. I'm going to go and put some water in somewhere so I can put some photovoltaics on. I just want to be able to use that at the pub. You know, I've got some photovoltaics on my place. <laughs> so it does sound interesting. We do have lots of reservoirs. So I'm not talking about out on oceans here. I'm talking about various reservoirs. Now, they might be a dam on your yeah. farm, you say. It might be a lake or a dam that's used for the public. So it might Oh, be yeah, municipal waterways and reservoirs, yeah. Exactly right. I'm not talking about rivers. I'm not talking about things that are flowing because that makes it a bit hard yeah. to tether it. To and anchor then, it, yeah. Yeah, and then tie it back. The estimation is that if we only covered 30% of the 115,000 reservoirs globally. Now, when they say 115,000, that's got to be the municipal size, not the Mm. Farmer Joe size. So if we covered only 30% of the surface of those, that would produce 9,434 terawatt hours of power a year. Now, I haven't had time to research how many terawatt hours we use across the globe, Mm. but that sounds like a fair bit to me. So the idea here is it does two things for you. First of all, you don't have to sacrifice farming land to put some photovoltaics, to put some solar panels on there. And that's one of the concerns, and it's a valid concern. Mm. You take farming land, you're growing a crop on there, and then you go and put solar panels on it. A bit hard to get the header down those rows of solar panels to actually harvest your crop. If you've got sheep or cattle on there, a little bit of a different story. So that's a valid argument. Putting it on water, well, that's okay. I'm not growing something in the water. That sounds okay. But you get another bonus because you reduce the evaporation from that water reservoir. Yeah, that's a big deal. It is. So if you did that, not only would you basically have uh, more power, obviously just those photovoltaics there or photovoltaics, but the estimation is that if you covered 30% of those reservoirs, that would give you enough water to supply 300 million people. Mm. Mm, Sounds good. I'm not... I haven't got all the background to the research. Again, I'm trusting the researchers have done the background on that research. But the bottom line is, it's a lot of evaporation saved. Now, the next thing I started to think about, which I'm going to throw to you here, is am I going to have so much loss of evaporation, so so much less evaporation from solar panels on reservoirs that I'm going to affect weather system. So am I going to get this ah. range? You know, that's really interesting because after 9-11 and they cut off all the aircraft, all flight pretty much around the globe just went quiet for about a week or so, they noticed this thing called the pan evaporation rate. So there's, there's a, a standard size pan that they use to measure evaporation rates. And um, they noticed that there was a marked difference in the amount of uh, water that was evaporating out of these pans because we didn't have the aircraft, because they weren't leaving their vapour trails, because they weren't sucking moisture out of the air, which then needed to be replaced by evaporation. So I reckon that'd be interesting to see what happens as a result. Yeah, look, if I got a definitive answer, now you've got to do the research, <laughs> haven't you? Yeah. But that'd be so interesting to see what happens with the, the pan evaporation rates. Yeah, and one of the things I thought about is that even though it sounds pretty impressive, those numbers, you know, 300 million people, 9,434 terawatt hours, the actual amount of surface area of those reservoirs that are covered mm. compared to, say, the ocean, then I didn't know that it would actually change it's the It's probably not going to have much effect at all because the amount of fresh water that we've got that's accessible on this planet is tiny compared yeah. to the amount of salt water that we've got yep. and the surface area of the planet. So, look, I reckon we can do this very comfortably with 30% coverage of all our lakes. That, that's right. And now, we'll be fine. There, you've heard it here first. <laughs> and the other thing that's interesting is that 40 developing countries 
have, if they covered 30% of their reservoirs, that would produce more electricity than their current needs. Mm. So if you talk about some of these developing countries, and so maybe it wouldn't work fantastically for some well-developed countries that have huge power needs, but for a lot of countries, that would be enough. So flotovoltaics, that's, well, again, we're not giving investment advice, but get on to flotovoltaics. Well, you've <laughs> got to also consider, look, uh, along um, shallow waterways, there is stuff that grows in those areas that does need light, does need um, access and uh, uh, to... To, to light, so algae can can put oxygen into the water. We don't want to deoxygenate the water at all. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, all that can be considered. Recreation can be considered. People want to go and water ski and fish and whatnot. Um, on a place like um, uh, Burrendong Dam, I'm sure you could accommodate both needs. Exactly right. And I thought about that as well. But if you only covered thirty percent, well, you could probably find the thirty percent that didn't need to be used That's by right. skiers. The other one that I thought would be an excellent place to do it would be hydroelectric dams. Because you've already got electricity supply taken to those dams for mm. the electricity they produce the by infrastructure water. There. Exactly right. So if you added to the infrastructure by adding solar panels, photovoltaics to the dam, because they've obviously got a dam, then that might be something we'll forget about. Thirty percent. Let's cover eighty percent of that if you're not using it for other things. How much of a system does ha- impact does it have on your aquatic system, on waterfowl, all the rest of it? That research can still be done, but we've got to have some other way of producing this electricity so that's yeah like and i reckon way. look farmer dickerson i reckon <laughs> that having it on your property there on a couple of dams on your property there not only you're generating your electricity but you're also going to be preserving your water for your cattle and your well your sheep. both of those and it's interesting because some people have this view of farmers sometimes with a bit of straw hanging out their mouth and a bit slow and dim-witted I often say that I never thought that. Please, just, just for the record. <laughs> okay, anyway, good. keep going. I wasn't thinking of you, but <laughs> okay. maybe some city slickers sometimes right, okay. think of that. But I always say that farmers are much more progressive and sometimes quite ingenious yeah. in what they do because Absolutely. they're creating solutions all the time. And if you just think of the good old-fashioned windmill, that was pretty clever when that was first invented to just get some water out of a well on a property. But now, how many windmills do you see? Not many because most of those farms have got solar panels, just a couple, with a pump at the bottom of those or somewhere near where they had a windmill, it's very frustrating when you take your kids for a car ride and you play windmills and you don't see them, so you've got to play solar panels and pumps on the ground to do the same thing as windmills. It's not quite the same. (laughs) But it is one of those things that farmers have been using solar panels for a long time to replace windmills because they found it was a bit more reliable having the sun there to use Mm. that pump rather than actually a windmill and a lot less maintenance. Those windmills, I've been up some of those windmills and you don't want to be maintaining them. Yeah. Last week, we talked about using data servers as an energy-efficient way to heat water. Well, some movers and shakers at a startup company called Deep Green have decided that this is a great way to extend the swimming season in the UK, Matt. Well, I actually said to you last week when we spoke about that, that it seemed like a novel idea, but I wasn't really convinced. Sure, if it's getting picked up well, there were some listeners in the UK (laughs) who thought, I've got an idea. (laughs) Because the problem with last week's solution was you're putting a small server into lots of individual homes. You've got to get the infrastructure to connect those. Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to maintain them. It just didn't seem like it would work. You needed to be able to scale it up like a data centre, but how can you use the heat it generates? Well, this is a great idea. You've got public swimming pools, in particular in places like the UK where it's cold, Mm. that need to be heated because people want to swim all year round. Fantastic. But heating those swimming pools is expensive. Often they're using gas. And wasteful. 
and wasteful. That's exactly right. You're heating it up, and that heat escapes, obviously, across that whole surface area of the pool. So why not team up data centres with swimming pools? Now we're so talking. So the waste of one becomes the benefit of another. Exactly and right. And then you can pour that heat out the top. It would have been wasted anyway, but that's okay because you've made good of some other place. You've made good of some other place, but it's also a big enough scale, not like the little one we gave last week, heating one home. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're heating a whole swimming pool. So now forget about one little data server. Let's use maybe not a full-size data centre, but use fair-sized data servers maybe a third, maybe half of a normal data centre and have that connected at where a swimming pool is and voila, you've got Mm. a heated swimming pool heated by the data centre, heated by the electricity feeding that data centre. So that to me sounds like a really cool concept. And so one of the things that was significant in this whole process, 65 swimming pools have closed in the UK since 2019 based on running costs alone. Oh, really? So you've got all these swimming pools closing down because they just can't afford to heat them. And again, if you live somewhere that's cold like the UK, your swimming season's about three days long. <laughs> the rest of the year... <laughs> you've got to make good of those three days. <laughs> right. The rest of the year, it's got to be heated. Yeah. So you can imagine the heating costs for that oh, wow. for, throughout the rest of the year. So I think this sounds quite clever. There have been a few swimming pools that have already signed up to the scheme. They're calling it a digital boiler. So I like that ah. idea. So you're, you're using... A, a digital concept to become the boiler for that. And again, now it's just a matter of them starting to roll it out, get other swimming pools interested. And who knows? Some of those 65 swimming pools that have closed may be able to open again because I'm assuming the swimming pool's still sitting there, just empty, used as a squash court now, maybe. <laughs> so there's now medical tech to read your blood, to read your sweat and your urine. And even to read your interstitial fluid, as we found out today, folks, is there anything left? Well, I guess that still leaves your saliva. That'd be something if we could actually read your saliva, surely. So what happens when James Bond's resident expert Q goes to dentist school? Well, you probably end up with a tiny chip inserted into your tooth to check the health of your mouth. Matt. You've got to love your wearables. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm getting a bit obsessed by wearables at the moment. Your tooth jewellery. <laughs> Two millimetres by five millimetres. Just imagine yeah, something that size. A, Would it be too annoying on your tooth? That's the sort of size we've oh, got down to. I can just imagine to. flossing it out accidentally. <laughs> Whoops. There's a million dollars down the drain. <laughs> bucks worth of wearable. <laughs> so the interesting part about this is that your saliva can test for more than 1,000 health conditions. Now, give me a quiz and say, name 1,000 health conditions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not there. If I can get to 50. Yeah, I'm pretty (laughs) impressed with that. So they say that there are 1,000 health conditions you can check. And by putting this little tiny sensor, which has got Bluetooth built in, two millimetres by five millimetres, has got enough information there that it can actually sense up to a 1,000 conditions from your saliva, and then transmit it. Now, the transmission range is very low. So Q sitting back in the laboratory would need to have something else on James Bond, maybe James's phone, for example, transmits via Bluetooth from the tooth to your phone, and then your phone can go out to the rest of the network, and away you go. So that's the sort of thing that people are developing now. That 2x5, remember, includes a battery and a sensor. And what? Yes, yeah, so that's what we're talking about. The battery lasts for three seconds, so don't get too concerned. No, no, the, <laughs> the battery lasts for only a few days or maybe a it's week, a so it's not a long-term battery. Double A battery that's got to keep in your cheek. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> You've got to stick it out the side from cables there. But 
the other one that I found when I was looking at this one was just getting to these small sensors. There's another pill that you can take. And again, it's got a little tiny Bluetooth sensor and it's a small enough pill that you just swallow it as you would a normal pill. And it goes down through your gut and does two things. The first thing it does is shows the speed of transmission down through your stomach to see if there are any particular blockages, but then tests for things as it goes through your gut, through your intestines, through the whole system to see that things are right there. So forget about putting a, 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 an endo, an endoscopy, does that sound yeah, like Yeah, that's right. Or, yeah. or something that goes up the other way, something that might be inserted from the outside into your body to check various levels of systems or health inside your body. Putting something that's the size of a pill, mm. there's again got the battery, the transmission. I don't know what you do when it comes out, whether you're expected to retrieve it <laughs> because it's too expensive not to retrieve or they just say, you know what, we're just accepting that it's going to be flushed away somewhere. But again, this is the sort of level we're at. So getting these little tiny sensors and putting them somewhere in our body, either in our mouth, on a semi-permanent basis, going through our body, because lots of things we do at the moment, you need to be knocked out for and have some mm. sort of scope put down into your body from either end. But getting away from that with some of these sort of things, yeah. that sounds much more pleasant than those having... Those major surgeries going to become fewer and further between. Yeah, and if we can see, if we can check some of those things on a regular basis, again, prevention is better than cure. Mm. And with that, we draw a line under another episode of Tech Talk, and that marks a job well done. Nice work, Matt. Another cracking Tech Talk done and dusted. Thank you. I'm just going to go and check my interstitial fluid to see how that's progressing today. <laughs> Me, I'm off to mark out a space next to the bathroom mirror in readiness for a brand spanking new toothpaste dispenser come September. Thanks for joining us this week, folks. Uh, we hope that you, there was a bit of a, a juicy tidbit for you, maybe one or two of those in today's show. My name is James Eddy, and it's been a pleasure bringing you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson once again. Keep checking in to get your weekly dose, and why not bring a friend along or two? See you in another week's time.